Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by our chief TV critic and my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan? There is so much news this week, Leslie. Last week was basically dead. Why couldn't we have split about half of this week's stuff into last week? Well, this is the end of the year crush where a lot of these networks and studios and streamers are rushing to close these deals before the holiday break. So that's why you're going to start to see things get a little bit busier than, well, I was going to say busier than usual, but it's always busy. Last week was just weird. Yeah, last week was dead. This week, though, not at all dead. Well, with all that going on, let's dive right into the headlines. What do you say? Up first, Michael Chabon and Aylette Waldman are adapting the former's The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay as a Showtime limited series. Yay! The drama will be part of a larger overall deal Shabon has signed with CBS TV Studios. Shabon will step down as showrunner of CBS All Access's Star Trek Picard for season two to focus on his Showtime project. A new showrunner for the CBS All Access series has yet to be named. And a renewal has yet to be announced. But come on, it's Star Trek Picard that's going to come back. Elsewhere, Succession creator Jesse Armstrong has signed a multiple-year overall deal with HBO and will continue to serve as showrunner on the breakout series and develop new projects for the company. Elsewhere at HBO, the premium cabler has picked up its L.A. Lakers drama series from Succession exec producer Adam McKay. Jason Clark and John C. Riley star in the drama, which chronicles the team's quote-unquote showtime era. And thankfully, HBO has changed the title from Showtime. That was not going to be confusing at all. You mean you weren't looking forward to referring over and over again to HBO Showtime? Me neither. Yeah. Uh, You know what they should call it? Stars. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) as we were talking about Succession, and we'll do it again, breakout star Nicholas Braun, you might know him as Cousin Greg, or possibly as he might prefer Cousin Gregory, uh, is going to play (laughs) WeWork founder... Adam Newman, take a look at a picture. This actually makes a shocking amount of sense. In a limited series from Chernin and Endeavor Content, a network has yet to be attached, but it would make sense for this one to land at HBO, or so my notes say, home of HBO's Showtime. Yeah, some sources say that they're going to take it to uh, HBO first, because come on, it's Cousin Gregory. Um, Over at HBO Max, Big Bang Theory star Johnny Galecki is going to exec produce a vacation spinoff called The Griswolds. That will follow the disaster-prone family at home in Chicago. Amazon, meanwhile, has renewed The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel for a fourth season. If you like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but potentially hate Joel, you should totally (laughs) stay tuned for our showrunner spotlight this week with Amy Sherman Palladino and Daniel Palladino as they talk about their long-term plans for the series and explain why Joel is still so very much on the show. 
In other renewal news, Apple has confirmed a second season of anthology Little America. And IFC has announced that season four of Hank Azaria's baseball comedy Brockmire will be its last. Ooh, such a good show. If you aren't watching Brockmire, watch the hell out of Brockmire, kids. Wrapping up, ABC has announced the cast for its next live comedy double bill. The December 18th special will feature all in the family live stars Woody Harrelson, Marissa Tomei, Ellie Kemper, and Ike Barinholtz returning alongside new faces Kevin Bacon, Jesse Eisenberg, and Justina Machado. Somewhat unpopular opinion. I don't really understand why they did All in the Family again, and I also don't understand why they did the same core cast of All in the Family again. I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy it and them. I'm saying part of the fun of this whole thing was that it was fresh and interpretive. I would have loved to have seen them do, if they were going to do All in the Family again, a completely different Bunker family just to see how other people might interpret it. But on the other hand, Woody Harrelson was not particularly good the first time around, maybe with a little bit of extra comfort. He'll be good this time. But Marissa Tomei was amazing. She was fantastic. But on the other hand, now we know to expect her, which was sort of the thing. It was like, oh, my God, what the heck is Marissa Tomei doing? It's brilliant. Now we're actually going to know what it is and maybe it won't feel as good. I don't know. Yeah. But meanwhile, ABC has also announced the cast of the second half of the live double bill, the cast of Good Times, Dan. And it's pretty great. It is ridiculous. The Good Time cast is going to feature Viola Davis, Andre Brower, Jay Farrow, Kareen Fox, Asante Black, Gerald Jerome, and Tiffany Haddish. That is insanely stacked. That's excellent. And that's Jay Farrow as JJ, if anyone was curious, since that's clearly the casting that people were most interested in, I would assume. I, I'm going to call, I'm going to say it, Dan. You ready? Go for it. It's Dynamite. Dynamite! Had to be done. I'm sorry. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five topics. Number one. Leading off, the Golden Globes and Screen Actors Guild nominations have been released. On the Globe sides, uh, Chernobyl, The Crown, and Unbelievable led the TV nominations with four each, followed by Barry, Big Little Lies, Fleabag, Fosse Verdon, The Kaminsky Method, and, yep, Succession. In terms of the overall TV nominations, Netflix led the pack with 17, followed by HBO with 15. And the remarkable thing there is that Netflix was also the most nominated movie studio, which is completely and totally unprecedented that the number one television network and the number one movie studio with the Golden Globes, both Netflix, apparently it is Netflix's world. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the beginning where you're starting to see that line blur more and more, especially with shows like The Mandalorian at Disney Plus and some, you know, the Marvel news that broke this week, which, which we'll get into next. But I, I think, it, you know, with with FX on Hulu and some of these other things, I think you're going to start to see larger umbrellas like Disney, which will get nominations for FX and ABC and any other of its platforms. I, I could see a day where that becomes the norm when it comes to these nominations. But in terms of the drama nominations, Big Little Lies, The Crown, Killing Eve, The Morning Show and Succession will compete against one another. On the comedy side, Globes noms went to Barry, Fleabag, Kaminsky Method, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and The Politician. So all the usual suspects plus a couple of new faces. Dan, what's your big takeaway? For me, it's broadcast TV's complete and total shutout at the Globes. Yeah, the the absolute zero nominations for broadcast is is remarkable because you just look at all of the possibilities and for none of them to have snuck in, whether it's something like, you know, obviously The Good Place is something that has gotten nominations in the past. This and, is Us. And This Is Us has gotten many nominations in the past. And so and you're Good Doctor, I believe, has gotten something for Freddie Highmore. Freddie Highmore, that was a while ago. I mean, this is it didn't for season two. And I'm not sure anyone remembers that show exists, at least not for awards purposes. 
but there were all of the fairly well-received new shows this year, and the, there was just no way, apparently, for the HFPA to recognize them. So no nominations for Evil. I could have imagined someone sneaking in for Evil. I could have imagined maybe Allison Tolman being nominated for Emergence or uh, Kobe Smulders for, for Stumptown. And instead, none of them got nominated. And th that's that's striking. And again, since broadcast TV does air this event, or at least NBC does, um, yeah, for now. Yeah, it's it's a it's a strange thing. I, you know, my biggest takeaway, honestly, was the entire snub, and I'm using snub here. This is this is you're snubbing uh, when they see us if you don't nominate it for awards, and when you nominate Catch Twenty Two for multiple things. Um, and but yet, George Clooney didn't get a nomination, which is, you know, shocking to me considering the HFPA's love of well star fucking and you can censor me however you want but that's what happens i think that i think that basically they saw giving it a series nom as being the acknowledgement for george clooney because attempting to nominate george clooney for his five minutes of forgettable screen time that would have been really and truly a bridge too far and he of course exec produced the show exactly and directed multiple episodes but no the, you look at how for want of a better word white the acting nominations are and you realize just how many just fantastic performances the voters missed and you start with the stars of when they see us and Jarell jerome is the easiest of them and they had to recognize chris abbott from catch 22 instead and that's a little baffling but you know the opportunity to nominate regina king for watchmen which got shut out which is uh, nuts which is ridiculous it's 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 stupid you know you nominate jody comer for killing eve but not sandra oh well okay that's a choice you're making but again you're you're rendering it a vaguely white nomination field you know how do you not nominate mahershala ali for playing a character through you know three different generations in true detective it's it's not hard you're not looking very far to nominate a lot of really good performers and instead it's a very bland nomination slate but what can you do yeah well let's talk about sag for a second here one common thread here at least netflix again edged hbo 13 to 10 in terms of the total tv nominations broadcast tv one for This Is Us star Sterling K. Brown. Amazon's Marvelous Mrs. Maisel led the pack with four, followed by The Crown, Game of Thrones, Stranger Things, The Morning Show, Fleabag, Kaminsky Method. A lot of the same players here. Those shows each got three apiece. In terms of the drama series nominees, the ensemble nominations are Big Little Lies, The Crown, Game of Thrones, Handmaid's Tale, and Stranger Things. Over on the comedy side, it's Barry, Fleabag, Kaminsky, Maisel, and Schitt's Creek. Dan, what did SAG get right that the Globes didn't? Oh, I'm not sure they got anything right, though they did nominate <laughs> they did nominate Jarell Jerome, so there's that. Uh no, this this is a bad group of nominees. It it just is. And and I honestly think as we look at it year to year to year to year, SAG voters do a very bad job of recognizing TV's best ensembles. And I think that someone needs to do something about how they do this because there's a lot of very complacent nomination but these are actors voting for their peers you, how can this group be complacent i have no idea and yet you still you look at the drama ensemble nominees and it's as you said it's big little lies the crown game of thrones handmaid's tale and stranger things i would put together an ensemble list that started with succession went to pose went to watchmen they were never going to nominate lodge 49 even though to me it's far more deserving than several of these shows but still if you start with pose watchmen and succession those are three ensembles that it's inconceivable to me to to leave out it, it is it is a reflection of 
just bad taste and bad recognition of what constitutes an ensemble if you're just going to keep nominating Stranger Things because what, the kids are decent? That's that's just not enough. You you cannot tell me that the Stranger Things ensemble is better than the Pose Succession and Watchmen ensembles. You, the, you just and, can't. And the narrative around Stranger Things, like like happens with a lot of Netflix shows, it has a very short shelf life. It's basically the weekend of launch. Maybe it spills into the next week or two, and then it goes completely away out of the narrative. Whereas Watchmen has just grown steadily week to week to week. And you know, shows like The Crown, of course, you know, hold the same thing because people watch that show at a slower pace, and it's also more episodes than the Stranger Things. But I mean, I, I'm surprised Handmaid's Tale, Dan. It's just the things where it's like, okay, yes, Handmaid's Tale is a great ensemble. There is no question. Who's going to say The Handmaid's Tale is not a great ensemble? But was the ensemble as well used and did it perform as well this season compared to other things? No, of course not. So stop saying it. Uh, no, it's it's just bad. And, you know, David Harbour getting nominated, fine. It's a, it's a you know, it's a good performance, but put in... Jeremy Strong from Succession or put in any number of people from Succession, put in Billy Porter. I mean, for yeah, heaven's sake. Yeah, that's sakes. ridiculous. That he won an Emmy and didn't get it. Did he get a Globe nomination? I think he got a Globe nomination, yeah. but, but not, not a, a SAG. Yeah, it's, which is nuts. The, I, SAG does a lot of things wrong. And I heard a lot of outrage about the movie nominations from SAG as well. So, yeah, maybe, maybe at a certain point we just need to say they do what they do and we don't need to value it any more than we do, except for the fact that, as we always say, it makes up the largest voting block of the movie and the TV academies. So we have to pay attention because it's a large voting block. But anyway, we've we've covered these two ridiculous things enough. I mean, was there anything just to wrap up the segment here, Dan? Was there anything that you were happy to see? In either one of these. Things. I don't know. On the Globe side, they gave a lot of, in both cases, they gave a lot of nominations to Fleabag. So if if Fleabag is, is my favorite show of the year, there's... Spoiler alert. It might be. It might be. I believe it should be, my top 10 should be posted by tomorrow at this time. So who knows? Uh, but yes, uh, so if, if Succession and Fleabag are among my favorite shows of the year, then at least the Golden Globe voters recognized a couple of my favorite shows. So there, great. Yay! They also get Rami Youssef getting a nomination from the Golden Globes was was a nice surprise. I hear that's a good show, Dan. It is. You should watch it, Leslie. Yeah, sometime. Well, well, let's take us to our next topic, Dan. Up second, it's the end of a chapter at Marvel. Number two. You might feel as if we've discussed this before, but we've discussed only a variation on this before because this week Marvel announced that its TV division fronted by outgoing topper Jeff Loeb, and that was the part that we have definitely talked about before, would be consolidated into the larger Marvel Studios fold with a few dozen staffers being laid off. So I guess simply put, what does this mean and what does it mean that's different from what we've talked about before, Leslie? Well, when we talked before, it was about Jeff Loeb leaving the company and leaving the division specifically. But now we're talking about this division is basically being folded in to the larger umbrella under Kevin Feige, who, of course, has been the brain trust behind all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the multi-billion dollar film universe that he's constructed. In a larger sense, it, it means that Marvel TV series will continue their current development. Anything that's currently in the works will remain in the works. So that's Hulu's four animated scripted shows, even though one of them is on pause, as well as the live action drama series Hellstrom. You know, Hulu already announced that Runaways would be ending this month. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. final season will will air in 2020. That's I believe production on that has already wrapped. But the current Marvel TV division that people have known under Jeff Loeb, that's gone. 
no new development will come from there. Instead, as we you know, this was revealed in October, Kevin Feige is now taking on complete oversight of everything Marvel. So that's film, TV, digital, anything else like it's he is the man over there. He's running it. He's in charge. And I think, look, you know, this you can file this underwater as wet because the the writing on this has been on the wall. The best example is to look at what's going on at Disney Plus. All of those Marvel TV shows are spinoffs of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and are all being produced by the film division. So these are TV shows that were being produced and shepherded by the film side instead of Marvel television. That is all you really need to know about what to expect from Marvel going forward. So I think it's, you know, to me, my big takeaway is... The rise and fall of Marvel television is one of the bigger TV stories of the decade. Because when you think about it, the unit launched in 2010 when Loeb was hired to run it. He was able to get a number of shows on the air. None of them really broke out the way the film division did. Legion, of course, was a critical hit from Noah Hawley on FX, but it didn't really connect with the fanboy audience. The Netflix Marvel Universe imploded amid rising tensions between the streamer and Disney. And, you know, Jeff Loeb was famous famous, almost infamous for saying, quote unquote, it's all connected. It's all connected. But yet few of the shows ever really tied together, of course, with, you know, with the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe. Netflix, of course, tried their best, but a lot of those shows were a couple seasons in and only kind of really came together in the miniseries crossover. So what to expect going forward? Look at Disney Plus. That's what what the future of Marvel is. Expect everything to truly be connected. And for me, you know, as someone who covers this industry, I really I wonder what Marvel TV could have been had Loeb actually delivered on the it's all connected. And I'm not talking about a crossover between Freeform's Cloak and Dagger, which, of course, has now been canceled and Runaways, which is ending. I'm talking about really connecting these in a way similar to what the film division has done. So imagine what Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. could have been on a huge broadcast network like ABC if it had really connected with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Imagine if Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. had connected with Legion across networks, especially now that FX is owned by Disney. Imagine if all these Hulu shows had crossed over and connected with the, the cinematic universe. I mean, you get what I'm saying here, Dan. It should have been connected on the TV side the way it was on the film side, and it just wasn't. I'm too busy imagining, Leslie. <laughs> well, let's imagine our next segment then, Dan. What do you say? Number three. Up third, the turmoil surrounding Survivor continued to escalate as the CBS veteran featured its a first this week in its 39-season run. During this week's episode, Hollywood talent manager Dan Spilo was ejected from the game following allegations of misconduct. Dan, you have not missed a single episode of Survivor in its 19-year and 39-season run. You just published a critic's notebook in which you pointedly said that the show may be permanently broken. What's going on here? Is this, is this angry Dan? This is more sad and kind of resigned, Dan. And honestly, I might have gotten a lot of whatever the anger was out of my system in the in the critics notebook up on HollywoodReporter.com. So I, I may at this point have just moved into into resignation because the reality is there were mistakes made at every level of the production this season. And we will never get accountability for any of it because that's just not what survivor does it's not what cbs does it's not what is likely to happen and i assume there are legal consequences i mean to sort of give everyone the background on the very first day of the game the first morning one of the contestants kelly described for the camera which means there was a person behind the camera that she was uncomfortable with the way that one of the contestants was touching her and it was it was just it was let's not say just just is the wrong word. It was being handsy in a way that she said she was uncomfortable with. 
period. And nothing happened. And she went and had a conversation with the contestant in question, and he seemed to understand and whatever. It was never mentioned again, except that it kept popping up over and over again. Finally, in the middle of the game, it blew up. It became a horrible thing where the producers said in on-camera text, not anywhere else, that they had discussions with the individual players. We don't know what they discussed. We don't know how specific they were. We don't know what happened because nothing actually happened. And then the player making the accusation was voted out of the game as everyone took the side of the person who was being accused, many of whom doing so because it benefited their gameplay and not because they didn't know that the initial person was telling the truth because it's all on film. I just, it is hard for me to fathom how so many things could have gone wrong at so many different stages, but the producers basically failed in what is totally their most important task in this entire game, which was and always has been keeping the players safe. That that's, is, that's on a human level. It's on not the, even on a show level. It's on, it's, it's on a human level. It's on a show level. It's on a we don't want the network getting sued level. It goes back to the very first conversations about the show back in 2000. And when it was coming over from foreign markets where everyone was like, oh, God, what if something horrible happens? What will they do if someone dies on the island? What will they do if whatever? Well, no one has ever died on Survivor. And part of why no one has ever died on Survivor is because the producers at every step of the game have made sure that the players are safe to some degree. When there was a season in Africa where no one could find food and it became dramatically stagnant, they didn't go back there again because they wanted to make sure that the players were not going to die and also that they were going to be able to be mobile and do things. They've found a location that they've been at in Fiji for years because it is, relatively speaking, a comfortable location for the players. So they failed to make the players safe. What should they have done? Well, first of all, on the first morning, they had to make it clear to Dan that he was not allowed to do this, period. When it was still just a, he's giving people massages that they don't want thing. When it was, when that's what it was, they should have said, you don't touch people in this game. You understand, right? Do not touch people. Period. Why and is that? Is, a and this is a talent agent. <laughs> this is someone in Hollywood who understands the Me Too climate and what this environment is oh, like. Oh, no, no. He does not understand that. And there at the tribal council where this all came out, he used that as showing that he knew what the Me Too movement was, not as an I exist in a cesspool of Hollywood where this is a thing that is a constant conversation. He tried using Me Too as proof that Hollywood was proactive and progressive, as opposed to what the reality of the Me Too movement is, which is that for decades, horrible things have been happening and no one's been doing anything and they should have been. That's what the Me Too movement is about. It's about how many people share these horrible experiences that no one stepped in to prevent. And he had no awareness of it. To me, and the show was never going to do this, they should have scrapped the show at the minute at which Kelly was voted out. They should have said, okay, everything from here on out is poison. And it is poisoned by what we did to screw up the situation. We blew this. This is on us. But whoever wins this season is going to win under conditions that we screwed up. It will not be a fair season. We need to stop this. And they didn't do right by the, by the woman who made the allegations with their actual footage on. And I mean, look, this is a game where, of course, people screw each other over left and right because they want a million bucks. But at, at a certain level, CBS, and this is CBS, home of Les Moonves, home of however many showrunners who have been ousted for inappropriate behavior that should know better to, than to air a season like this and to let this happen on their watch. 
And then ultimately, when Dan was eliminated from the game, it was done in a five minute after the Tribal Council segment where Jeff Probst came to the beach, told everyone Dan was gone, didn't explain what happened, nothing. And then on the screen, it was off camera. There was an incident that didn't involve a player. No, that's that's just not that's not how you do this that is not transparent that does not give audiences the feeling that the game has integrity that the people involved with the game have integrity and yeah and this is all too bad because the upcoming 40th season that is coming up is well no it's all too bad on a human level because it's awful that's why it's bad but it's bad for survivor because they've got a big 40th season coming up bunch of winners all-star season yay celebration of the game and since all of this started going down you know, I've been watching the game. I'm not getting any pleasure out of it because all I do is I look at the awful people who did awful things and I look at the one or two people who did good things and they're being mistreated and scrambling. And this is all because producers or whoever failed to keep people safe in the way that was their responsibility. Are you going to keep watching, Dan? Probably, yes. <laughs> I'm I'm weak, Leslie. There's there's <laughs> nothing. I'm, I'm weak and I work on inertia and reflex but yeah this this is too bad this is this is a show that i love and a show that is special because its formula is so effective and so reliable and is so good at producing great television and this season it has produced bad television and bad humanity. Yeah. And that's also led the amazing Josh Wiggler, who has covered Survivor for us extensively with visits to the island and all the locations and exit interviews and Jeff Probst interviews and podcasts and just really amazing coverage. Yeah, he's he he's done with the show and stopped watching after that November episode. So yeah, they, they have a problem and I don't think it's fixable. Yeah. And I support Josh on this one. That's a good one. Well, that takes us to our next segment. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight. Number four. Joining us this week in a segment that we should note was recorded before the renewal announcement came in are Amy Sherman Palladino and Daniel Palladino, who serve as showrunners, writers, and directors on Amazon's Emmy-winning The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Before the story of a Jewish woman breaking into the world of stand-up in the late 50s and early 60s, they worked together on shows including The Gilmore Girls and, alas, Bunheads. Welcome, Amy and Dan. Great to be here. So when you guys started the first season, you guys were coming off of a background that was primarily network and basic cable. After the kind of initial giddiness about, you know, doing fleeting nudity or swearing war off, as you're in the third season, what have you guys discovered that you appreciate more about, uh, and most about working and streaming? I, it's the nudity and swearing. I yeah, don't know I mean, why else you would do this. Um, no, I mean, I, I think the... There's a couple of things that are kind of game changers for us. One is with the expanding world and especially the streaming world, you, there's, there's no reaction to non-traditional characters. So, you know, Midge Maisel is someone who would not make it on network television for many reasons. And also the, you know, you know because because basically uh, strong women often scare a lot of um, executives in, in the TV business in Hollywood. We've had a lot of personal experience with pitching other projects that include really strong women. And we get these sort of coded questions and comments that we know are sort of hitting at, is she unlikable? And that's that's always applied to female characters much more than it is male characters. So also, so, if you hit a dude who 
it reminds him of his, of his ex-wife. That's never good. There's yeah. a lot of that. Then it's all on. over. And, and then the other thing is just sort of the freedom of storytelling. You know, we, you know, running times are, are an issue even on cable. And Amazon has given us sort of a free hand as far as how we tell the story, which means that we don't have to make weird, major, soul-crushing compromises on length of show, cutting things for time and all that stuff, which are sort of the false kind of things that you have to deal with on other outlets. You know, so we limit our, we, we try to limit ourselves. We we wouldn't do a two and a half hour episode because people would get bored with that. Oh, we wouldn't, wouldn't we? <laughs> we wouldn't do an eight minute episode because that would feel like a ripoff. But we have various lengths, especially in this season, because the story just called for it. And to have the freedom to do that is a great bonus for people like us. Also, you know, one of the main things is marketing does not run the content of the show. And when, you, <laughs> when you're on a network show, marketing is telling you what the form of the show is, how many act breaks you're going to have, when they want to put the soap commercial in. It's like it's, it's a completely different creative judgment you know they 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 aren't judging on the level of is the story good is the character interesting they're judging on you know uh, will the rice crispy sell if she does this you know if, if midge gets up and swears at this point you know we're we're, we're out the gummy bears audience or whatever <laughs> the fuck it is and and it's it's kind of lovely to be somewhere where Everything is going to be judged basically on the creative aspect, and and that's it. Because you know, it doesn't matter about the the marketing department in terms of sales. It's it's a matter of subscribers. It's a whole different criteria, and that that is really the the kind of the real lure of of coming to a streaming network because they're gonna. There's now the open door for voices and characters and stories is. There's no limit to it because they're not looking to sell something to a specific group. Well, can you guys kind of quantify or define how when it comes to strong, uh, sometimes problematic women, why, say, for example, a Lorelai Gilmore or even a Rory is a broadcast version of that archetype while Midge is the streaming version? You know, why could the Gilmore girls not have been streaming characters? Well, here's a first of all, Gilmore girls would not sell today. If I went into a network today to try and sell Gilmore Girls, they would not buy it. Gilmore Girls sold at a very specific time when it was the WB. They were kind of in their infancy, and they were making their bones off of Joss Whedon, J.J. Abrams. They were making their bones off of, we're the place for creative people to come with new voices. Weirdly, they were kind of tapping into what the streaming network took over. They call themselves the anti-network. They would have like anti-Emmy parties because they were never nominated for anything. <laughs> like that that was who the WB was. That's not too sad at all. No. <laughs> but you know, so we kind of slipped in there on a fluke. And at the time, the head of the network was somebody who wanted me to do a an hour-long comedy. I've never done that before. So it was it was a sort of a rock and roll time at the WB. It would not be that way today. There's there's no network that I could go in and say, yeah, it's just the Trials and tribulations of a mother and a daughter walking around a, a, a Connecticut town. They'd be like, yeah, I don't, you know, that means nothing to us. So I, I, I preface it with that. And the main thing about Midge is Midge, first of all, it lives in a comedy world. And it's often like when a network tries to do a, a story on, a, on, on drug dealers or something like that. And everybody's saying, hey, man, you know, 
screw you. You know, it's like it's it's like there's a there's a lack of reality and grittiness to the to the environment that you you have to honor because it's it's not about the language, it's about what's real, what feels real. And if you watch something and it feels fake to you, maybe it's the language, maybe it's the you know, the sets, maybe it's the actors, who knows, but whatever it is, it's it's they're gonna drop it like a hot potato. To do a comedy world with network standards would be literally impossible. It would be absolutely impossible. You know, it just it there's no way it would work. And and that is just the fact of of, of where it's set. I also think that Midge is somebody who She's cute and adorable, but she's very flawed. She can be very narcissistic. She can very, be very wrapped up in her own world. There's no consequence. You know, she, she, you know, goes out in the world and she leaves her children at home and she doesn't cry and, you know, have, have issues about that. It's, the, you know, her husband leaves her and he's back and he's fourth and she's sleeping with him, not sleeping with him. Like, all those things are things that a network will judge a woman by. And that's, you know, and that has not changed. It has not changed because they have a very conservative marketing group to make happy. That's where they get their money. You know, that's how they have to do it. We have Jeff Bezos, who has all the money. So, you know, we don't we don't have to worry about that. Yeah, And, you know, building off of that, you know, two things that I wanted to follow up on. You know, the first is, you know, obviously you revived Gilmore Girls and you did that for Netflix. But was there interest at the broadcast? Do you think that would have worked? No, it wouldn't have worked. They, they, there was, you know, when we pitched this to Warner Brothers, they brought up the possibility of doing that, which we, which, which we immediately nixed because we, we didn't want to make it into a series. It wasn't, it wasn't really a land grab or a money grab for us. We, we really, it, uh, enough time had passed. We weren't there for the final season. We were rebonding with all of the cast. None of them had mutated into something uh, un unphotographable, and we just <laughs> and a window sort of opened, and we grabbed at it, and we really wanted to tell these stories though in in a non episodic fashion, you know. So we chose the four ninety minute episodes or four movies, and we did them. We wanted to do them over the course of a full year. And it just sort of was like uh, we thought it was a cool, interesting way to bring the show back. So it's the same show. We didn't change the language, you know, just yeah. because it was on Netflix. They weren't going around saying the F word and all that. There was stuff. no nudity. There was no nudity. We we it we was still Gilmore Girls. Yeah, we wanted to stay true to the style of the show, but we just we changed the format, and we we really enjoyed doing that, and everybody else seemed to like it too. Yeah. And then, you know, with Mrs. Maisel, when you pitched that and obviously Amazon was aggressive and picked it up with a two season straight to series order. But when you shopped that, did you take it to broadcast or was this specifically a decision to go streaming? No, it was it was actually it was actually sold as a as a pilot to Amazon. And then we did the Gilmore movies and they were kind enough to wait that year because we like I said we had that window open to do Gilmore we did it and then we went back and they said sure we'll still do the pilot and it was when we were shooting the pilot that it it was one of those rare things you know we had Amazon executives there watching while we were shooting it and it was one of those rare things where you watch the monitor you you watch what the actors were doing you watch the takes and you saw the show. You know, a lot of times when you when you shoot, especially pilots, 
you don't really know exactly what you have until you get it into editing. And a lot of times when you get these things into editing, you realize, oh, I don't have anything, <laughs> you know, because it just, a lot of things just don't, don't come together. But the weird thing about watching this show being shot is that you, you basically saw the show on the monitors and Amazon was seeing it too. They were very, very excited on day four of a 14-day shoot, which is unusual. They, and, and yeah, they, they were very negative the first three days. Yeah, but then day four came, and they were very happy. So that's why they did the two-year pickup because it was this cat. It was it was really the cast just kind of exploding from day one, and that's just almost sort of accident on Maisel. Yeah, it, it's it's. It's it's something that you can't plan for. It's sort of that lightning in the bottle thing. And they their working styles all just gelled and we did rehearsals and it just it all it all just luckily came together really, really quickly. So in the second season, after the success of the first, you guys were able to make the big flex and get Amazon to let you shoot multiple episodes in Paris. What did the success of the second season give you the latitude to do that maybe you couldn't have done before on the third season? Mars. Well, well, We're going to Mars. Well, here's here's the thing oh. about the second season. We had not won anything when we were already shooting the second season. We had not won Emmys or anything. We it, we were already working on it. So it was it was not the shiny stuff that made Amazon let us go to Paris and Catskills. It was it was just the show because it's it's weird how this works. Like it's. I, it's it's still new for us actually because we're used to the 22 you know and you do this and this was you know eight ten and then you just move on at a certain point and where it falls in for in front of awards is you know anybody's guess in in terms of of this so we we didn't really um have to pitch them too hard because we pitched them at the very beginning when they picked up the show we said look every season we're going to get bigger as her world expands, you know, the world has to expand. They knew from day one we were going to go to the Catskills in, in season two. They knew that was going to happen because we sort of said, you know, first year's Discovery Story, second year it all starts to unravel. We're going to go to the Catskills. We're going to see that. Third season she's going to go on tour. So we had these sort of pinpoints for them, you know, right off the bat. And that's that's I think that's why they felt comfortable with the two seasons because they sort of already kind of heard the bullet points for, for what they were going to be. And then there were shiny stuff and spanks. <laughs> the award shows always come with um, a lot a lot of spanks, sometimes for the men. Well, let's pick up from there. You know, obviously with the big Emmy win and then for, for comedy series and writing and directing, I'm curious, how did those big victories help solidify your place at Amazon? I mean, you've been there now you for, with two separate overall deals, obviously renewed the last one. And... You know, the, the things that you're that you're prepping there, you you option Mary Gabriel's Ninth Street Women, which is, again, about women in the art world. How did those Emmys really help solidify what you want to do at Amazon and and the, the creative length that though that the streamer will let you go, especially with new leadership, with Jen Salky coming in after Roy Price was pushed out? Well, you know, we, we've been through several regimes. We, we were through. Roy Price was pushed out, and then Joe Lewis was pushed out, and then the guy Morgan, who was our sort of head of person, he went to Apple. So like we we've actually it's been a it's it's been an interesting revolving doors over there. Our main creative people have always remained the same; they're still there. So the people that we talk to on a daily basis, we what? always feel like the awards 
it's wonderful to get awards, but but frankly, what it's really good for is to make the people who are writing ridiculously large checks feel very good about their investment, that 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 it's paying off, that the encouragement that they gave you, that the 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 responsibility that they they laid on you that it's and and the work that you're doing and that they are encouraging it's being noticed and it's it's getting out there and I I think that that's great I think that that's they they should get crowing crowing rights off that because they they're the ones who said okay go do it you know they at any time they could pull us back and go you can they just walk around the block for an episode you know that that's never happened so I think that that is a very it's an important thing it's a it's an important tool and it's and it's also good. What we love about this, because, you know, we weren't Emmy kids. We didn't, you know, we've been in this business a long time. We've never been at an award show ever. The Golden Globes is the first award show we'd ever been to that, like, we had anything to do with. So what was wonderful is that we had this amazing group of people and everyone's work was getting acknowledged. And that is very important to us. It's very important that Bill Groom, who does our, our sets, and Donna Zakowska, who does our costumes, and David Mullen, who's our cinematographer, like that these people were all getting noticed and, and, and tip of the hats. And that's very, very important to us, as well as our actors who are just, you know, showing up every day with their A-game on. It's, it's important to us for that reason. Well... I mean, when the show started, the first couple episodes were very Midge-centric, and she was the the focus, and this was her story. But as you say, there are so many actors in this cast, and it's such a, a huge ensemble. Did you know from the beginning that you needed it to be more than just a Midge showcase, or was that one of those, well, we've got Tony Shalhoub, we have to make sure we get value for Tony Shalhoub, we have to make sure we get value from Aaron Hinkle, et cetera, et cetera, kind of things? If you look back at the second episode of season one, the first the first show back from the pilot, Amy and I made a very conscious story choice that you will see that each character, a Abe, Rose, Michael, Michael Zegan, Joel, Michael Zegan's Joel, they each have their own solo scene that does not have Midge in it. And we consciously did that because we wanted to tell the audience Yes, this is called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Mrs. Maisel will always be the, the, the focal point, but we are going to tell stories about the family and we are going to tell some stories individually about the family. And it's not always going to be about Midge. Midge kind of affects everything, but she's not gonna be in every scene. It was the kind of thing that if we had done this on, like, let's go back to the networks. If we'd done this at the networks, they say, no, 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 we need to see her Mrs. Maisel. We need to see her in every scene. We need all, all this stuff. but. With, with the open minds here at Amazon, I think they really liked that, it, and it seemed to work. And I think we we subconsciously told the audience, this show is going to be about all these people. You're always going to have a lot of Midge Maisel, but it's going to be told told about all these people. When Tony, when we hired Tony for the pilot, you know, the one, the one thing Tony said was, I know the role's not very big and it wasn't in the pilot and we told him two scenes yeah we were very honest we said and we really can't make it bigger for the pilot but tony we promise you it's going to be much much bigger in the series because you're playing the role and um we we had every intention to break that promise but we ended up not breaking it so you know because we're hollywood people but um <laughs> so the role got bigger because tony was playing it and then rose's role role got bigger because marn came in and she was scoring as much as tony and then of course alex borstein's character came in 
And we saw right from the beginning that, like, she was going to be a major breakout character in this because she she she's, Cause she's so, Alex fucking Borstein. Yeah. And she's so <laughs> connected to this role. She connected in a way that w even we who have known her for 20 years, even we did not think that that we, we, we did not foresee like the depth that she was going to bring and really the vulnerability. So I think it's 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 exciting for us to realize, yeah, we scored really big with Rachel coming in and, and being able to do this comedy role when she had never done comedy before and be and to be able to do it with with such skill. But we, we you know, we're naturally going to all these other people because they've they've earned it. You know, they've 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 just earned it and they give us so much and the audience loves them. We sit in on screenings and we hear people screaming when Tony says something and screaming when Rose says something. And so it's it's, it's we, also we see it. It's also a way to like keep keep your audience expanding. You know, some some people are going to love Midge the best. Some people are going to love Susie the best. You know, some people are going to look at Rose and have a deep connection to what she's going to going through or what, you know, or or you know, someone's going to look at Joel and go, "Jesus, I made a bunch of fucking mistakes like that too. How's he get out of this?" And that and that kind of thing is it's it's a lesson we learned on Gilmore Girls, where we had a lot of pushback about, you know, they just wanted, it's about those two girls walking around in a circle, and, and we're like, yeah, but they gotta talk to somebody, otherwise they're nuts. And, and, and nobody over there saw how important Emily and Richard Gilmore were gonna be. And Emily and Richard Gilmore were vital to the, to the survival of Gilmore Girls. If we had not played into those two characters as much as we did, I don't think Gilmore Girls would have lasted the way it did. I don't think it would be the show that it was. And and that was something that they were not literally not interested in. Because they wanted, you know, they wanted you like right before you menstruated and a couple of years after you menstruated and they get, didn't give a shit. So it's like they didn't they really didn't care about Richard and Emily for a very long time until they realized even young people loved Richard and, and, and Emily's journey. And you just can't discount for you think one character is going to pull in a certain audience. You can't discount that it's it's a variety of stories in a world. If you're really going to create a world that people want to hang out in, you've got to give them a lot of different points of view. You've got to give them a lot of different journeys. And and uh, and we always, you know, we learn from Gilmore, and we always intended to do that with Maisel. Well, you mentioned that Joel has been kind of relatably flawed or that he made relatable mistakes. And I feel like that's a character who definitely is is very polarizing. What do you guys like about that character and why is it important for you guys to keep him as part of the story when in some stories that character would probably have just vanished after the pilot, basically? Yeah, I mean, from a structural point of view, you, you, you could have never have seen Joel again. We went into this even before we met Michael Zegan, who we who we fell in love with. But we went into this knowing that this was going to be the story, the story partly about a young man who makes a fatal mistake. And An a mis immature mistake. And a mistake that he's going to spend the rest of his life suffering from and trying to redeem himself. And Michael, Michael is someone that, that we really love working with, and he, and he just made it really, really easy. And we are continuing that journey because, you know, it's, it's like, as Amy always says, like, how do you redeem the, the hunter who killed Bambi's mom? You know, it's like, how, how, how do you do that? It's an it's a interesting challenge for us, quite frankly. It's like, it's, it's a really interesting challenge because that character was deep in a hole about three-fourths of the way through the pilot, 
And then how do you make him into how do you make him into someone that you relate to, that you understand, and that you're ultimately going to be rooting for? And, I, and we, I think, we go a long way throughout all of this season, all the way through to the end of episode eight, to show the man stepping into the boy's shoes. The other thing is, one of my pet peeves always with any sort of romantic comedy or a lot of times television where, where, where you're coming up on a story where the wife has been left by the husband or whatever, they always demonize these male characters so much that for me, and it's just for me, I'm, I'm one person, but for me, I always looked at that female character differently because I figured, I figured like if you were married to this schmuck, and he was such a dick, and he was so annoying with so many gross habits. What's wrong with you? And that's the way I looked at a, a lot of these romantic comedies where like, they felt like you've got to really demonize the guy so that she can go off with Tom Hanks. And it's like, my feeling was here, I didn't want to bring that, I didn't want to put that on Midge. I wanted to know what about Joel Midge loved so much. I wanted to know that he was funny, that he made her laugh, that he was fun, that they played games and they had this night, even after they had kids, they had this night where they got dressed up and they went downtown and that he had this dream and she was supporting him. I wanted to know that about him. And the minute for me that I know about all the things that she fell in love with, it's like those things aren't gone just because he fucked it up. If anything, it's more tragic the minute he realizes that he fucked it up and look what he lost. He lost exactly the thing that he wanted. And, and I think that love affair and that, that back and forth makes her a more interesting person that she didn't just fall in love with a guy who had allergies or he was gross or he was fucking every secretary that walked. You know, that they, they were two people in the 50s that were living a, a postcard. And their whole life was built on sand. It wasn't built on reality from both of them. You know, it wasn't like she didn't see the fact that he was not happy. She ignored it. She ignored the fact that he had this dream because she thought, oh, he can just do that dream at night, but during the day he's going to work in an office. That's misreading your partner. So they were, they were two children walking into a ridiculous situation where they weren't ready for it, either one of them. Well, do you guys have, though, the exact opposite problem with Lenny Bruce? Because there's so much clear chemistry between Rachel and Luke, and yet people who actually are able to Google are very much aware of where the Lenny Bruce actual story is going. Are you guys prepared and kind of equipped to handle that? Or is that something that you're kind of playing by ear, at least for a little while, knowing that eventually it's going someplace bad that you don't want to go? Well, you're, you're, the minute you put Lenny Bruce in it, you know, you know where you're going. I mean, you can't pretend it's not going to happen. And, and it's part of the reason that we love this Lenny Bruce character so much. It, it's not just because Luke Kirby is, is just a, like a gem and a brilliant actor and very easy on the eyes. It's not, it's not about that at all. It's about the fact that this was a time where she's entering into a, a male-dominated world. There weren't that many female comics. This was, this was not a, a hospitable world for her to be entering into at all. And yet one of the legends, as we all know now, one of the bravest of the brave, one of the people who was trying to push comedy into a, a different realm that wasn't take my wife, please, that was much more about, you know, life and relationships and politics and the world around you and religion and how fucked up it was or how good it was or how bad it was, looks at her 
as an equal, looks at her not as a skirt, not as a piece of ass, looks at her like a legitimate comrade in arms. And that is a very big deal for someone like Midge, who is is going to be battling this. But 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 these are two people who are sort of swimming upstream together, you know, her because she's a woman and him because he's simply doing something that society is not quite ready for. And I actually think the fact that we know where he's eventually going to end, it, it adds to the cautionary tale of ambition and following your dream and the fact that every dream comes with consequences and it can go great or it can it can go off the rails. Yeah, you know, one of the things, you know, you mentioned, uh, speaking of ends here, you know, we're in an era where a lot of these streaming scripted shows rarely make it or go beyond season four. Specifically, there's the Netflix and four being the new six. But I wonder what you what is your long term plan for how many more seasons Maisel runs? We you know, we we have no pressure on us. We have an idea of sort of emotionally where we want the Midge character to end. We didn't know. We, we don't know exactly how long it's going to take. We're only about two years into her journey because time has kind of slowed down in um, in TV land for us. Because we're really old. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think right now, you know, with, with, with everything popping, we don't feel any, ooh, the streaming world likes to cancel things after three or four years. You know, the streaming world is proportionally about as full of bad stuff as it is good stuff, uh, just like a cable network or anywhere else. Some of the failures are much more interesting than failures from 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 the old days of the of the reign of the four networks because not everything is homogenous. So you see some really some really wacky failures, and it's 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 really admirable. I think the, I think it's great. It's it's opened up to so many different kinds of voices and and all that stuff. So. I think the cancellation thing for the streaming networks is coming as much from some of these concepts are just more narrowly focused. And in the old in, in the in the days of the networks, they always look for like something that could run as long as a law and order. You know, that's their golden calf there that they're that they're all that they're all going for. Whereas there are shows that it kind of makes sense that they go three seasons. You know, it doesn't make sense for a lot of these shows to go seven seasons. We don't know how long we'll go, um, but we don't feel any pressure and we and, and we feel good about the stories that we're coming up with now. And dear God, we have enough to worry about without that, worrying about that. I mean, you know, the world's ending, so we can't, you know, the world could end before we get canceled. So we, we just don't, uh, yeah, the, the, we're not going to think about that. The world could be canceled before we are. That's, <laughs> that's, right. that's, that's the risk that we run. Yeah, well, speaking of other uh, good problems to have, you know, you with Ninth Street Women in Development, you know, we're in this landscape where the, the most talented showrunners are juggling, being asked to juggle and program a number, an entire slate. I mean, Greg Berlanti has 21 scripted shows currently in the works. Where do you guys fall? Obviously, you know, you mentioned Maisel took a backseat while you were doing Gilmore Girls for Netflix. But do you envision having two shows up and running at the same time or more? I, I think we could do two. Uh, you know, there's different business models. You know, the, the you, you mentioned Greg Berlanti. That's not our business model. That's a that's a lot of delegation, whereas to other people and I and Amy and I yeah, we're not good at that. A Amy and I are little more hand carvers. Yeah, megalomaniacs um, is the good word. Yeah, I mean we we a great crew for us makes makes our lives a lot easier. We have a few select really really great writers that we work with. 
a small writing staff, though, and our, like I said, we, we tend to pick up a chisel and hammer at the marble until some, something emerges, and it tends to be something that, we, that it's better for us to be hands-on than to be overseeing a lot of projects with a lot of other writers writing scripts. So we, we have other projects in mind, but it's, it's, it's about figuring out the ones that we are full-time on. We'll never be a Greg Berlanti. That, that is just, it's too many meetings and phone calls, quite frankly. It's too exhausting. I, I never, that man, I don't know how he does anything but have phone calls. And it's just, it's, 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 a, it's a great business model. If it's something that makes you happy, that would, it just wouldn't make us happy. You know, we need to be on the set. We need to be working with the crew. We need to be rehearsing with the actors. We need to be in the trenches to really feel like we're doing what we need to do. Well, going off of that, you guys do like to write all the scripts yourselves. And dating back to Gilmore Girls, I feel like audiences have always tried to suggest that they could tell the difference between Amy-written episodes and Daniel-written episodes. Are audiences projecting when they try doing that, or can you guys see the differences yourselves? Well, we don't write together, so there's always going to be differences. You know, like we yeah. we, 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 we we have different sens- sensibilities on certain kinds of jokes or patterns or rhythms, so I, I think that's fair. However, on stories, I think we're completely and utterly in sync. Yeah, we, we, we come up with all the storylines together. So if it's an Amy written script, I've put in a, a, a lot of effort and vice versa if it's mine. I, just, I have more fucks in mine, basically. Yeah, she puts more <laughs> F words, obviously. I, I don't know if you bleep those, but you should get your bleeper uh, ready to edit this. But, I, you know, like, it, you know, it's very slight stylistic differences. As I, I, I've said before that that I, I was a giant Monty Python fan, and I think the arg- there's a version of the argument sketch in every script I've ever written. I didn't realize that until much later. I don't do it consciously, but I, I, I realized that there's always this sort of rat-a-tat back and forth between two people who are sort of talking at cross-purposes. So there's some stylistic things like that that I think if you, if you deeply studied our oeuvre, Am I saying that right? I, I couldn't know. spell it, but I could barely say it. If you studied it, you might be able to do it. You might be able to do it, but certainly story-wise, it's the stories are ours. You know, we do it together. We get input from other writers. That's always of a piece for for the show. And then we go off and do our thing. And Amy puts a lot of f words in, and I put so in some many. Money I want to out mam it, mam it, man. I, yeah. It's my, it's my, it's my goal. <laughs> you know, I think you guys probably get asked this in every interview, and I'm. This is no exception. But you know, Cindy Holland, who runs originals over at Netflix, said she would do more Gilmore Girls. Is that something that's of interest to you, or has that book been closed for good now? We've always. Well, it's interesting that Cindy Holland said that. <laughs> that's good to know. Thank you. Um, I will be the proud husband and say that Reed Hastings has mentioned Amy by name as far as somebody that he would like to work with. And that's that's Reed well, Hastings. That, that was very sweet. Yeah. yeah. I uh, you look, the first Gilmore Girls movies were not planned. And I know that no one believes it, but they literally were not planned. And we got together for some strange panel in Texas. ATX, the best, the best festival on the calendar. Yeah, yeah. I was very sweaty and gross, and I I had frizzy hair. And we went to, like, we we were literally at an open bar, and we were all realizing, like, we've never been together since, like, the end of Gilmore Girls, this whole cast. And and we, it sort of was created out of a moment of drunkenness and free booze and, and us feeling like, now feels like the time. So it sort of happened there. It happened very spontaneously. And we, and we, and Dan and I actually said, we don't know, like, 
what the appetite for this is or what it's going to be, but let us go find out. So I only say that because we absolutely are open to doing more Gilmore Girls. We are, you know, Lauren, I, I talk to Lauren constantly and we're very tight with, you know, Milo and, and Kelly and uh, Alexis. We're, we're, we're tight with the, the, with the Gilmore family. It's, it's not anything other than we need the right story, the right format, and the right timing. It's really, it's nothing more than that. It's not about, you know, I, we have it in our deal. Amazon will let us go do it. So it's like, it's not about anything other than it was sort of kismet when it happened the first time. And I think we sort of feel like it needs to be kismet if we do it again. And our standard last question that we just like to ask everyone we talk to is, what are you guys actually watching on TV? What time do you have for TV? Well, we're we're watching The Crown. We've we've seen one. We really loved it. It's such a great concept, and you know we admire the production values because we're admirers of that stuff now. We're only now catching up with Mindhunter, which we're really so digging. Good. Um, uh, Peaky Blinders. Peaky obsessed, Blinders. Obsessed. Yeah. Obsessed. 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 Yeah. Kind kind of. Uh, obsessed. Yeah, literally obsessed. Kind of trying to ration those, trying not to go too fast through them because we're old-fashioned people. We we try not to. I know we and... saw like the first two or three, and now we haven't seen it. We slowed down for like weeks because we're terrified because there's only, they only give you six of them. Yeah, so those those are three to come three. That, that come to mind that we that we really love. I think you're there. Our first showrunners uh, who we've asked that who haven't said either Fleabag and or Succession. So nice, some nice uh, diversity in the answer here. <laughs> Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. This is we, we, we're well. We already saw Fleabag, so yeah. you know, <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Well, Amy and Dan, thank you so much for taking the time out today. We're, we're happy to have you on. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. guys. The third season of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel is now available on Amazon Video, and the show has been renewed for a fourth. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the critics' corner. This week's new arrivals include The Expanse on Amazon, the final season of Runaways on Hulu, Fox turned Netflix drama Soundtrack, and A Christmas Carol on FX. But the one show everyone will likely be talking about is Sunday's Watchmen season and possibly series finale on HBO. Joining us to preview what to expect is Josh Wiggler, who has been doing an incredible job covering the show for the site over on weekly podcast series regular as well as for live feed. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, man. Uh, at the end of the line with Watchmen. This is wild. This is this. These nine weeks flew by. And, you know, before we get into things, let's consider this our a warning to our listeners that this segment will, of course, include spoilers from the first eight episodes of the show. So consider yourself warned. And we should also add, though, that neither Josh nor I nor Leslie have seen the finale. So we're not going to spoil anything from the finale because we, we don't, haven't seen it. We don't know. So. Right. We might. We should. We should also note that uh, that I will be speaking as quickly as humanly possible about Watchmen right now, so that I can go and watch the finale because I am. I am. <laughs> I'm dying to put my eyes on this thing. The great thing, Josh, is that you are following in this podcast Amy Sherman Palladino. So there is no way you can be our fastest talking guest <laughs> in this podcast. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, let's get into it. What's the biggest burning question heading into the finale that, that you're hoping that 
is answered that the episode answers very easy who is lube man <laughs> uh introduced in episode four a, a masked maybe crime fighter who looks like a putty from power rangers who pours vaseline all over himself and slides on the asphalt and goes into a sewer and has yet to be seen again who is that guy yeah uh i, I would say that's probably like the 14th biggest question heading into the watchman finale which means there are a lot of questions still heading into the watchman finale so the overarching one is how are we answering everything with one episode left? There's just so much up in the air and only one episode to do it all in. Kind of on the edge of my seat to see how they how they land this thing. I feel like Lube Man is becoming one of those things like about 50% of the questions on Lost that are sort of these things that fans get fixated on initially as a joke and then become increasingly more fixated on and then get pissed off if we don't get the answers about them. So, like, I don't think that the mythology of the series requires an explanation for who or what Lube Man was, but I think without any question that there are still going to be people disappointed because we've kind of made Lube Man into the stand-in for all of the things we want answered. Or are you going to be genuinely pissed if you don't? find out who Lube Man is. I wouldn't be genuinely pissed if we didn't find out who Lube Man is because the Lube Man scene, if they never address it again and all that we got out of it was Regina King chasing him through the streets of Tulsa, losing him to the sewer and just screaming, what the F at whatever just happened to her. That's, that is such a delight on its own that no lack of answers could ever change how, how wonderful it was to behold that scene. That being said, I do feel like we will find out who Lube Man is. Uh, Antonio Mazzaro and I on the series regular podcast have basically just taken it uh, as gospel until proven otherwise that that's Agent Petey. Uh, we figure we'll probably get we'll, we'll, we'll get some sort of Agent Petey in full lube man regalia in the finale. But I think the bigger questions are, you know, we, we came out of this big Dr. Manhattan episode this week. We now know how Dr. Manhattan factors in to the into the HBO adaptation of Watchmen or extension of Watchmen maybe is, a, is the right way of saying it. We know that the villains, the 7th Cavalry, are trying to become Dr. Manhattan themselves. They are trying to harness his powers. We know that there is maybe this counter plan uh, from Lady True. She's got the Millennium Clock. Uh, we don't know exactly what that's going to do, but you have to imagine it's going to work against whatever the 7K are up to. And I think that the big question is, how are these things going to collide? And how are they going to collide in the context of the greater themes, I think, of, of what's going on in the life of Angela Abar? the Regina King character here in Tulsa. I'm very excited to find out the answer. Now, I have a question for you just as a general viewer. When I watched the seventh and eighth episodes, I was surprised by the revelations about Dr. Manhattan. And my instinct in such cases is to go and be like, okay, I didn't see that coming, but maybe I'm not the most obsessive of viewers, but surely if I go online, lots of people did. And I was not surprised, but I was amused by exactly how many of the details the good people on Reddit had identified, you know, both in terms of the broad strokes, but really catching so many of the little jokes. So are you the kind of viewer who goes and reads forums to help with your conspiracizing or do you prefer to do it all in your own head? Uh, I like 
like to read them after the fact. I like to read them after Antonio and I have podcasted. And Antonio and I have been talking to each other about myriad shows on podcasts for, for years now. And it's been such a delight to have him on series regular. He's kind of the second brain that I possess when it comes to these matters. Uh, and it's always fun to see what have we latched on to that maybe Reddit is latching on to after the fact. Or what is Reddit latching on to that, that is completely off of our radar. And for us, we we both suspected that there may be something going on with the Cal character. I don't think either of us thought that it was going to be a Dr. Manhattan reveal. I, and we certainly suspected that there was definitely something wonky going on with Dr. Manhattan. This story that Dr. Manhattan has been on Mars for 30 years and there is a satellite feed that depicts this man. This god is still on Mars and has just been building sandcastles for 30 years on a loop. That just did not feel quite right. Uh, but I don't think that either of us really suspected that those two things were going to collide. And frankly, Dan and Leslie, it made, it made me feel rather dumb when I realized that the episode, the big Dr. Manhattan episode, had been, and, and the title of it had been known for quite a while, uh, A God Walks Into a Bar, and knowing how much that Damon Lindelof loves himself a pun, uh, to have never once connected that to A God Walks Into a Bar, just made, made me feel like, uh, as a student of Lindelof, as I like to, to describe myself, I felt like I'd really failed that test. But it was it was a nice testament to the fact that I think that there was a lot along the way here in the first season of Watchmen and per- potentially the only season of Watchmen where you you felt like you were in on it if you were watching it closely enough. And even if you weren't watching it with, you know, razor sharp clarity, I think some of the some of the story twists and turns weren't being hidden in such a major way, like Jeremy Irons being Adrian Veidt. We don't hear those words until episode three, but you know he's Adrian Veidt. And it doesn't matter if you know he's Adrian Veidt or not. What matters is when Jeremy Irons delivers his monologue as he's dictating a typewriting session with Crookshanks. Uh, what matters is the, the the way that he just emotes those words, Adrian Veidt. And it doesn't matter if you if you knew who he was the whole time. What matters is how that's going to land in Saki in the face. I think the Hooded Justice uh, episode is a really great example of that as well, where a lot of the fan base seemed to puzzle out that Louis Gossett Jr.'s character, Will Reeves, was Hooded Justice way in advance. That didn't take any of the power out of that mesmerizing sixth episode. With that being said, when you can have that emotional power and you can have that high quality, you know, technical delivery combined with the shock factor, which is what I think that we ended up getting with this Dr. Manhattan reveal, um, now you're really in the sweet spot. So I, I was just so impressed with what they did in the penultimate episode and, and so eager to see how they resolve it in the finale. Yeah, I mean, you know, here's my my question. And look, I'm someone who admittedly never read the comic and never saw the movie. So all of these things played out as true surprises for me. So my question, and for you, as someone who is a student of Lindelof's and a lost expert, do you think that this finale will be, will tie up everything or will it leave a lot of unanswered questions. He has talked about this. Uh, you know, so so Lindelof has talked about, and he, he had announced it at New York Comic Con, that it's very likely, or at, at the very least, that he envisioned season one of Watchmen as its own story, that there may not be a second season of Watchmen, or if there are subsequent seasons of Watchmen, he may either be uninvolved, less involved. I just don't think those decisions have been made yet, as at, at the time that we're having this conversation, at least. Uh, Dr. Manhattan, were he here, could tell us, because he can see the future. But in, in talking about the, the 
design for season one. Lindelof has talked about this as much like the graphic novel. It's a closed story. It's its own thing. Front to back by the by the you know the opening minutes of this series that takes place in 1921 in Tulsa to wherever we're gonna land in the closing moments of the finale, these nine episodes will represent its own fully told story. But if you know Damon Lindelof at all, then you certainly know that his definition of closure will differ from some other people's definition of closure. And even the Watchmen graphic novel ended in a really open-ended way, uh, where there's the question of whether or not Rorschach's journal, which contains copious amounts of notes about the, the Ozymandias conspiracy that has driven so much of the action of the HBO show, will that get published? Will that get read? Will that leak out to the world? If so, how will that change this insane plan that Ozymandias enacted in order to forge peace and potential utopia in the world? So I I fully expect that there will be some sort of provocative questions still left hanging in the air by the end of the finale, but questions that are being asked without the expectation of ever answering them. And I think that uh, Lost is my all-time favorite, but I love The Leftovers, and I think that that is where Lindelof really started mastering this art of, uh, as, the, as the theme song would tell you, let the mystery be. Uh, and, I, and I think that there are definitely going to be cases where, while a lot of these important storylines will be resolved, I think character fates, for the most part will be greatly resolved even with some open-endedness to to many of them i think that there will be questions left in the air but that fits alongside Lindelof's idea of uh, closure so that may sound scary to some people to me that sounds like a delight I can't wait to see how it maps out now it feels like each week everyone's been kind of blown away by each passing week's episode but I need you to pick a child pick a baby favorite episode of the season Josh uh, favorite episode of the season, maybe because it felt so much like The Leftovers, was the uh, was the episode with Tim Blake Nelson uh, in the, in the forefront as Looking Glass and and getting to really dig deeper into into Wade Tillman, the character that he's playing there. I, I think that he's just done. There's been such such remarkable performances all across the way that I feel like because he's kind of a a, a secondary character, maybe he's being talked about a little bit less than the deserved praise that is being heaped on Regina King for for the work she's doing as Angela Abe. Bar. Uh, but I just I just loved getting underneath the mask that that uh, reflective mask that Looking Glass wears. I loved that we were able to go back all the way to uh, the events of eleven two, as they call it in the show, November second eighty five. The great squidening, the sudden squidening, uh, and and seeing it seeing it from the perspective of everything that's going on in Hoboken, which is you know a stone's throw away from Ground Zero. Uh, it was a very exciting thing to behold as a fan of the graphic novel. But I just appreciated. The the structure of that episode, it really did feel like uh, that Carrie Coon as Nora Durst could have popped into that grief counseling section at, at, at any time, and it would have uh, very much felt of a piece with the leftovers. <sighs> Damn it, man. You were supposed to say either six or eight were your favorite, and then I was supposed to go, I'm going to go with Dark Horse. I'm going to go with episode five, which was really more of a leftovers episode. <sighs> <laughs> Well, I loved six and eight. I loved six and eight. Don't get me wrong, but I'm with you. I, I think that the dark horse is typically the one that I like the most. So uh, we're, we're going to have to be on the same page on this one. Okay, Dan. fine. Leslie, you choose your favorite episode and it's not allowed to be episode five. It's all of them. I mean, each one uh. for me is better than the next. And it's become something that it's appointment viewing. I watch it live. And I don't watch anything live anymore. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's one of the, the be- my favorite shows of the year for whatever that's worth to anyone. I am I reiterate again that I am not a critic. So 
For more on Damon Lindelof's thoughts on a potential second season and beyond, be sure to go back and check out our episode from October 25th when he was our guest in the showrunner spotlight. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. You'll have more for us, I presume? Yes, THR.com slash Watchmen. I, I believe that I will be speaking with the man himself very shortly, Damon Lindelof, so we will have coverage for you there. And of course, Antonio and I, we are going to have a deep dive into the finale with our series regular podcast posting Sunday night right after the finale. So if you watch that finale and you've got smoke coming out your ears, plug them up with some earbuds or your headphones of choice. Antonio and I will will guide you through it as best as we can. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Watchmen finale airs Sunday at 9 p.m. on HBO. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up for this week. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week with our special year in review episode. We'll have several special guests. And until then, be sure to subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review. It helps spread word of mouth. Come say hi to us on the Twitter. We're always happy to hear from you. Get your questions, comments, and concerns. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you want to reach out to us at TV's top five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.